Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 88. Asmodia has ever needed to flirt before. She has needed to smile. She has needed to gasp in false pleasure. She has never received the slightest reward in return. Nothing good has ever happened to her as a result, only a diminution of punishment. Now here she is, smiling at Keltham, coming on to him far more blatantly than most of the other girls. And the other girls haven't actually been briefed on Asmodia's situation yet. There wasn't enough time before dinner. So their almost entirely masked expressions of confusion are priceless. Each time she touches Keltham's hand and suggests in a low, sultry voice that they go off to bed together, and lie there fully clothed reading books, and maybe in a year or two she'll find him attractive. She's flirting with a man who can't have her tonight, who'll never have her at all, who knows he can't have her, who is smiling back at her because he doesn't know he can also never have her heart, or that she'll teleport out of his life at the first possible moment and she was promoted in her top-secret, top-priority project to effectively second-in-command almost, and placed in charge of an incredibly challenging and exciting game of deceiving him. Her life is just like a romance novel now. Except that even if Asmodia fucks up, she won't get tortured, and even if she fucks up completely, she can suicide before getting tortured to death and hope that somebody is nice to her again within 100 years. Those aren't the way it would work in a romance novel at all. But both of those facts just make her life unambiguously better, even if it wouldn't work as fiction. Asmodia is right now having the time of her unfucking life, her defucked and unfuckable life. Keltham's civilization has it exactly right about the message that it thinks proper to tell asexuals. Asmodia would change nothing about this situation if she could. I feel like you're not having enough fun with this, says Yaisa. If it were me with a dozen boys from another world desperately fighting for my attention, I would say, kiss my feet, slaves, and see who did it fastest. Not everyone shares your kinks, Yaisa. Maybe Keltham enjoys watching people come up with excessively complicated plans by which to try to win him, so he can judge whose plan is the cleverest. I mean, you can also say, kiss my feet and then go bring me back a real live kangaroo. First one back wins, slaves, and he's not even doing that. Was Carissa ever a teenage girl? She is pretty sure she wasn't. Apparently Keltham has never had a proper chance to be a teenage boy before. He banters back as fast as he can think of witty replies, and if he can't, he only needs to wait another two seconds and somebody will deliver him a different prompt. If he had to declare a winner on the basis of clever lines, it'd have to be Asmodia. But that's not all this contest is about and Keltham does not quite feel like clothed book-reading tonight. I suppose I could make you all compete to solve math problems for it, Keltham says, grinning about as widely as he ever has in his life. I mean, it's possible some of you might have other capabilities, too, but that's the main capability I've seen so far from you all. Am I missing anything I'd find interesting? He n doesn't think he's going to be no longer okay for casual sex, as a result of falling in something with Carissa. He's currently looking forward to selecting one of Ione, Meritzel, Peranza, or Tonia to schedule a nighttime rendezvous at the end of all this. 
and Keltham expects that to go basically well, unless he stumbles over some weird new aspect of his own sexuality. Yaisa is the one to whom he feels most sexually attracted, in fact, but that would be a little um, pending discussion with Carissa Etre Ali of what happens to, among other candidates, Yaisa. He'll ask what a slave is later, if he remembers. From context, it's obviously something like masochist or submissive. You make us solve math problems all day, Yaisa says. The romantic contest should be of a different nature. Or, I suppose it could be something like strip-solving math problems. I'll lose and Asmodia will win, but apparently that suits us both. You should really tell the site manager that our uniforms aren't sexy enough so they budget us new clothes, Tanya says. The site manager will say, Ah, uh, but perhaps the clothes will be Kutite spies, says Meritzel, and propose instead that we all go around naked. Well, you know, he has a point. Have you checked if your clothes are Kuthite spies? Clarification. Clothes cannot actually be spies, says Meritzel helpfully to Keltham. And to Yaisa. Why, I check every morning before I prepare spells, don't you? Clothes can't be spies, says Keltham to Meritzel. That sounds like something a piece of clothing would want me to believe. Are you a piece of clothing? What happens when you are taken off? Why, I don't know. Many men have tried to take me off, but none of them were clever enough, or dangerous enough, or Dothalani enough, so there's no way to know if it's even possible. This would seem to imply that you are not only clothing, but men's clothing, and yet you appear to me to be a woman, which would self-evidently make you a spy. Are your apparent clothes also spies? Well, you can't check if someone's clothes are spies while they're wearing them, which is why I check in the morning before getting dressed. So whether my clothes are spies is unknowable until someone manages to coax me out of them. And what am I expected to do, after what sounds like a great deal of effort on my part, if beneath all of your clothing is, in fact, a man's shirt? Compose the world's most interesting urgent security breach report for the Grand High Priestess, obviously. The project has been infiltrated by a shirt pretending to be Meritzel. Two new projects should be spun up at once to research the violations of the laws of magic that this implies. You have some strange notions of how to spend a fun evening. I thought you might suggest that in this case, I might as well try wearing you. But if you'd rather file security breach reports... I told you, no man has ever succeeded in wearing me. What makes you think you're different? No man of Galarian has ever worn such a shirt as I wear even now. Also, the last god who went against me ended up in a little box. Then perhaps you could triumph where all before you have failed. Or perhaps when you turned your gaze from defeating gods to wearing me, you aimed too high even for a Dath Ilani. Can't actually say no if you put it that way. See you later in the evening. Just to be clear to everyone else, though, that isn't going to work on me twice. Nothing will work on you twice, Yaisa says. We'll have to get up to steadily more depraved things just to do something you haven't thought of. And in two months, you'll only want squid, polymorphed into girls, whose eternal servitude you earned by slaying their squid, Zon Kuthon. Meritzel beams fiercely at Keltham. See you later tonight. See you later, Meritzel. Well, also see you imminently after dinner time, if that time works for you and the other three. And Yaisa, welcome to civilization. PL timestamp. Day six. Evening. They've got something like a proper meeting, breakout room now for this conversation. Well, not by civilized standards, obviously, but better than just grabbing a random, not especially so purposed room in an archduke's villa. Keltham probably owes that guy a favor at some point. Anyways, 
It's pretty clear at this point that competence at learning law has stratified into Carissa Asmodia Maricel Ione, Pilar Gregoria Paranza Tonia, and Jacme Pela Paxtiaisa. The original contract for having the girls come in was for one week, as Keltham understands it. So, um, Keltham isn't sure what's expected about Yakme Pelapaxti Yaisa. On his model of things, the bottom third there will noticeably slow down further lecture learning, and probably not produce enough work output to make up for it. And if there's any ability to add additional people, their opportunity costly, they'd take up a limited number of student slots. Okay, now that he's saying this out loud, it's pretty obvious what the decision has to be, even though Keltham really doesn't like it and feels even worse about how he was just flirting with them while managing not to think through this line of thought, to its clear conclusion, though Keltham doesn't say any of that out loud. How does Cheliax handle this situation? In civilization. In non-top-secret projects, you just let people go work on something they'll be better at. In civilization's top-secret projects, everybody who goes through an elaborate screening process to receive classified info has been predicted by Prediction Market to work out. In either case, you had an explicit understanding with them before they came in about under what circumstances they'd go, but Keltham is kind of guessing that the reason this explicit understanding has not been mentioned to him is that it does not in fact exist. This is a foundational question of how Alter Cheliax treats people in a way Keltham will accept not of figuring out the consequences of deceptions already decided. Asmodia will assume it's Sivar's work unless Sivar tells her otherwise. On a normal military secret project, you can get reassigned. If the project's not a good fit for you and you've maintained the level of top-secret clearance you needed for it in the first place. If you accidentally wandered into something with clearance wildly above yours and then aren't a good fit. Honestly, the usual is probably that you go to hell— at least until you no longer know anything top secret. Like, in a year or two, it'll likely be fine to let them go back to their lives. But, if you're going to be reluctant to drop unpromising students from the project for that reason, I don't see an issue with doing something else. I've actually got no idea how much of a hardship it would be considered to be to spend a couple of years in hell, and I definitely wouldn't be asking that of somebody unless that part had been explicitly explained in advance. Given how long it took between when I got here and there were girls in the library, there must have been either a very standard contract or a very improvised one. Does anybody have a copy on hand? As of slightly over an hour ago, yes, this obviously ordinary existent piece of physical evidence that Keltham could have demanded at any time in the past six days now exists, and Sevar thought through this section in advance. I brought mine, Asmodia says and hands hers over. She doesn't allow the slightest trace of triumph to show on her face, even though, in her own opinion, this wouldn't have gotten done in time without her helping to prompt it. I think you probably want Section 5.3. This contract does permit, in Section 5. 4.1. That if the contractee is exposed to sufficiently secret information and better options don't exist for hiding it, the Chelish government can demand that somebody go to hell and stay there for up to five years as required. The five is written into a line for the exact number. He finds it soon enough. I'm not saying it's not logical, or even that it's not sensible, but this is still weirding me out a bit. Do people come back totally fine from that? 
Staying in hell that long doesn't make them less suited to Galarian? There's no probabilities. What did they think the probability of this being invoked was when they signed the contract? This is frankly a much more extreme decision than I thought we'd be facing when we considered startup composition. I'm not sure I feel okay making it. If you'd rather the girls get put in a different wing of the fortress being taught something tricky, ring forging by a senior wizard, there so you can visit them and sleep with Yaisa occasionally, I don't think anyone would object. If that lowers the barrier to you removing people from the project, it seems obviously worth it. You're allowed to be evil and just do whatever is most comfortable for you. Thank you for reminding me of that. It is not actually something you hear in civilization very often. I'd like them to have that choice, yeah. Ideally, some other choices, too. Even if it means calling in favors from Cheliax. It is not something I'd decide one way or the other for them. He notes that feeling of moral dissonance that he's had before, when Carissa talked about selling tickets to watch rats devouring each other. And unless Yaisa has a very specific sexuality that somebody needs to inform me about, if so, she isn't to be told that her ability to stay here is contingent on her fucking me. Nor will it, in fact, be so. Asmodia wishes again that she had some way of knowing if the gardens of Ericura would also receive Paxti, if Paxti could somehow be advised that the hell option is her best bet. How would she even communicate that, though? Or have Paxti follow through? in a way that wouldn't set off twenty kinds of what-the-fuck nearby. Was that thought a stupid one? No, if someone somewhere cared about Asmodia, she's allowed to give a fuck about Paxti. Or the other three, too. Though that thought seems stranger as yet. Sure, that seems reasonable. You have a lot of latitude, give them some choices. If the choices are good, it'll also probably help with other students not being scared of failing out of the project— which I bet you'll tell me is useful for learning Dath Illinism. And no, I don't think you should keep Yaisa here conditionally. I just think she's obviously into you. And I may have, at risk of becoming a too-good person with a too-big headband, asked the High Priestess if she happened to know which other girls like getting hurt, because... Because I feel like it's my fault for having trouble relaxing that you feel like... Maybe that's a conspiracy, that maybe no one anywhere actually likes being hurt, and if you have a nice, uncomplicated time with someone who you can tell is loving it, then you'll, uh, move your probabilities specifically on the question of whether we made up masochists. But I have been warned against being a too-good person with a too-big headband, so I'll cut it out. Carissa, I deeply appreciate your efforts in this regard. May follow up on this later and would right now like to follow the Dathalani best practice of just completely not talking about this in the context of who stays employed by the project, as in, we don't talk about this at all, until after everything has been settled, and this meeting has been adjourned, without that having ever been a consideration. If you think that's an absolutely terrible way to approach this issue, I'm open to having an extended meta-level digression about whether I'm being overly good here or just lawful, though I'd want to free Ione, Asmodea, or Meritzel to sit that one out if they wanted. Nope, I think that's a good plan. Let's make project decisions entirely off one of who is good for the project, or what is good for your own personal ability to make project decisions without feeling guilty. Which, it sounds like, is coming up with a bunch of appealing options for the girls and letting them pick one, and surveying the remaining girls to make sure that the options sound appealing enough that they're not scared of being fired? Yeah, 
I would have expected a compensation clause in the original contract, actually, if people were going in for a week that carried with it a significant chance of some very large consequence for them of spending the next five years in top-secret info lockdown, for which they wouldn't otherwise be paid an excess wage. Is that already in here? The cleric of Abadar attempts to flip through the Asmodean-written contract, looking to see if a clause like that already exists. Does it? It says compensation is 300 GP for one week's time to be renegotiated after one week, and to at no point be less than their standard military pay if they'd been deployed as planned. Right. Their actual alternative wasn't being computer programmers. It was that they were otherwise heading to the world wound. Most top-secret sequestration conditions are probably nicer than that, aren't they? So long as living conditions go. It is sometimes hard to remember how Galarian works, and casting an illusion of civilization drawn from his own mind didn't help with his sense of reality. He hasn't actually said, see him, uh, at any point. Now that he thinks of it. Kind of pointless now. Still, universalizable rules. He'll do it next time he's alone. Asterisk. Said by Dathilani, when they think this seems impossible, I might be insane, and the people around them should get them to a psychiatric institution if they don't seem to be correctly check, summing immediate reality. An emergency signal, never said as a joke. All right, then I think we take that as our baseline option to potentially improve upon later, though I'll want to check what the actual options being offered to them are, and whether I feel a need, or just want, I guess, to call in further favor from Cheliax to improve them. Wow, does that still feel awful? Well, everyone warns about that, and everyone is apparently right. Go figure. That leaves the question of what kind of contracts we see for the eight who stay. In Dathilan, people in this kind of position would usually be offered some of their compensation, in the form of an expected share of future profits, and this is something that we have to negotiate with actual Cheliacs at some point, but at least in Dathilan, that agreement would be produced by us collectively negotiating with Cheliacs, especially you four, because you're the ones who seem relatively irreplaceable. Actually, now that I think about it, Pilar is not exactly all that replaceable. She should arguably have something like a tier one and half status, based on a suspicion of greater than first apparent impacts of divine interventions a status that gets promoted to Tier 1 if Pilar turns out to be way more important than just saving my temporary life once and having snacks. Anyways, I'm still waiting on Cheliax to offer me a first-run contractual relationship between Project Lawful's employees and Cheliax, where I'm not quite sure why they don't have one yet. Except that my guess is that they want more than a week worth of data to make up their minds. And the trouble there is that I don't feel it's particularly prudent to, like, work on metallurgy or road-building for a month without any contract. We could potentially have a crude contract for the first research that gets done, with intent to renegotiate it after seeing how early results play out. But I do want any contract. And... What I'm getting at here is that I can successfully sit down in a room with you and figure out what you think Project Lawful wants from Cheliax, or what you want which is more than I've been successfully able to do with Cheliax itself. Except for one person who didn't seem empowered to do binding negotiations, and who I think isn't back from hell yet after the Nadal assault. Well, I have even less authority than that, but we can at least try something and send someone down to the site manager's office in case there's a contract ready and waiting for you. There is. 
She very firmly told the people writing it not to get caught doing anything tricky, but she half expects Keltham to object, even to a bunch of things that weren't intentional tricks. And personally, I'm delighted about some share of future project revenues, once we all have headbands which aren't even bottlenecked on money. Money later's about as good as money now for me. She wants to not sound too rehearsed, because in Alter Cheliacs, she wouldn't have an inbuilt instinct that contracts will destroy you if you don't have a specific plan for avoiding that. Don't worry, Cheliacs. Keltum is a programmer. He may not yet have an intuition for everybody being out to burn him all of the time, but he sure does have an intuition for asking, well, what if this measurement here was broken and returned negative a trillion gold pieces? If you try to make sure you can't be screwed over in a contract by malicious gods, you'll catch a lot of human malice along the way. Asterisk. A Dathilani concept essentially untranslatable to Taldane in its connotations and origins. The two-syllable word programmer has an expanded six-syllable form that reads creator of raw causality, where creator in turn implies one who accepts responsibility for all consequences of creation, whether intended or not. The same word that appears in expanded parent as creator of sapient life and raw causality means raw math, close to the bare bones of reality. The nearest Taldane translation is in fact Creator God, if Creator Gods work to a much smaller scale. Keltham shall endeavor to send to see if a proposed contract has conveniently arrived, then. He sort of assumed he'd be told if it had, but then that was sort of a stupid assumption. While they wait for that, he'll take a quick run at explaining equity, options, vesting, fixed and event-dependent components of compensation, the interest of individual employees in reducing variance on core income, even at some cost in expected money because of their logarithmic utility functions, over money, the standard internally expected return on marginal. Capital formula that determines where a company places its standing limit buy and sell orders for its own stock into the general market at any given time. And other basics that shouldn't be too hard for the project's better mathematicians, right? It would have been kind of nice to know this stuff before selling her soul. Except Meritzel doesn't even think she knows this stuff now that she's been told it. I assume devils know all this stuff already, but if they haven't gotten this complicated, they're going to love you so much. This is not complicated. Those are the straightforward, automatic consequences of the structure of corporations with divisible financialized ownership of uncertain future incomes made out of their internal contractual relationships with employees who have standardly human-shaped incentives. What does Cheliax do instead? Uh, you tell people I'll give you a silver a day if you show up for work. And then on days when they show up, they get a silver. Unless they aren't worth it, in which case you tell them to stop showing up. Does Cheliax by any chance not have pieces of companies getting sold around between people who own those pieces of companies? Does Cheliax by any chance not have companies, just people paying other people to do things? I don't think I understand what a company is as distinct from my father owns a lot of ships and hires people to send them places to get cargo. Keltham is now recalculating several important parameters of local reality. Please hold. While he does that, some people bring the proposed contract. It's still a draft with several people's comments written on it, but maybe it'll still be useful to him. It being a draft is one of several ways Cheliax is protecting itself against Keltham finding the contract suspicious. The contract proposes a Kelthamishly fair division of the gains from trade that the Crown captures through its normal mechanisms of taxation. 
which are that taxes are collected by local governance and the bulk passed on to higher levels of governance. It proposes measuring this a couple of different ways and using the middle measurement and referring disputes to hell for arbitration. It can be paid out in Cheliax's fiat currency, backed by hell, or in gold if they have enough gold. It predicts that Cheliax would learn all these things a year later, if Keltham did this work elsewhere, and does not want Cheliax worse off for being the place where Keltham did it. So the fair division in the contract's reckoning decreases substantially over time. They are probably not trying to cheat him, because if so, they would have tried to carefully argue him around to this viewpoint, before just dumping it on him. Okay, so first of all, this seems to be based on a model where, it's implied, no country can protect intellectual property, like at all, and countries just rip each other off about it without any attempt to pay patent gratuities on anything, and that there's no such meaningful thing as a trade secret, human capital, it being hard for other corporations to just completely copy everything you do. So maybe Keltham is just misunderstanding how things work around here. But what if they used other countries' observed abilities to copy Cheliax while this starts happening, as a proxy for Cheliax's counterfactual abilities to copy other countries, maybe very moderately discounted if somebody feels strongly about Cheliax actually being better at copying or at keeping trade secrets and that mattering to fairness? There's an obvious-seeming formula which uses their excess GDP growth to discount Cheliax's excess GDP growth, modulo above trend exports of Cheliax to those countries, under an assumption that the export prices capture around half the gains from trade that is those countries getting richer by trading with Cheliax. Actually, no, that shouldn't be discounted, because Cheliax would experience similar gains if Keltham set up elsewhere. Never mind. Point being, Keltham is maybe just wrong here, but also suspects that Cheliax underestimates the degree to which Cheliax will become richer than other countries if those other countries try to get away with ripping off the project and paying nothing on the intellectual property they try to steal. This part can potentially be settled by writing some observable proxies into the contract, rather than arguing it out in advance, at the expense of contract complexity. The tax system is confusing, and Keltham is simply failing to parse it. Cheliax is actually made up of a bunch of other countries with their own separate economies and tax systems. How does a world invent fiat currency before it invents stock markets? That's insane. Who would try to hold that much currency? Currency is not an investment. Nobody has attached any reasonable bounds on any of the variables referenced in this contract code. There's no mention that taxes from some subregion can't be returned as negative a trillion gold pieces, and cause the project to owe Cheliax five entire copies of Galarian. There's no minimum gold amount that Cheliax definitely thinks it has available in the way of gold. The using other countries' observed ability to copy Cheliax things seems like a good idea. Have we, at no point, gotten around to trying to explain what the nobility are? I guess we haven't while I was in the room. This has in fact not occurred. What new Galarian Doomfact now awaits poor Keltham? So, I don't know tons of history, but, stylized, you've got a bunch of farmers, and they get periodically raided by bandits and wild animals. So, whichever farmer is the best at fighting bandits and wild animals collects protection money from all the others and gets even better at fighting bandits and wild animals, and eventually they own a bunch of land on which other people work, and they protect that land from bandits and wild animals 
and they're much richer than the people who work the land. Now, say there's a dragon. They can't handle a dragon. Or say that the neighboring person of similar standing tries to invade and kill them and take their stuff. They'd really like to have alliances with other landowner defenders. Some of those alliances will be on equal terms. I defend you, you defend me, and some will be on terms of you swear to commit your forces where I command it, when I command it, and in exchange I'll extend my protection to you. And in most places you build up layers of this. A small landowner defender is a baron, and a count is a landowner defender who has barons pledged to him, and a duke is a landowner defender that has counts pledged to him, and the Archduke of Sirmium, whose summer villa we borrowed, is one of the dukes who, duchy is particularly big and powerful and important, and dukes pledge to the queen. And the way taxation happens is the barons get the grain from the farmers who work the land, and they pass some on up. Where does suggesting a reorganization of Cheliacs fall in the category of things one doesn't speak about around here? I wouldn't say it to the face of any people who might lose all their stuff in the reorganization, and it has the same terrible track record when tried as overthrowing the government does, but none of us are going to feel vaguely terrified if you declare that actually there's some clever way to just see the Queen's will done everywhere. Keltham knows that he explained this part already. Because Keltham was there, the point of reorganizing is not that people lose their stuff. You're supposed to trade around the jelly chips in a way that leaves everybody better off. This system sounds ludicrously inefficient, and if it was reorganized, there would be gains to the whole system that could then be distributed. Is it possibly the case that nobody in Galarian ever suggests anything like this? I don't know that anyone has suggested specifically a reorganization that leaves all current nobles better off, because if you're not making the world ludicrously wealthier, it'd be really, really hard to offer them a deal anywhere near as good as the one they have now. That's got literally nothing to do with how well off they are now. If the system is a million gold pieces wealthier than it was in total before, you've got a million gold pieces to pay people above what they previously had. What prevents a reorganization like that are friction costs, where moving things around is very expensive. But we're not actually going to fix it. Fine. How does the project deal with this monstrosity? Are the dukes not going to respect the intellectual property of Cheliacs? Are the counts not going to respect the intellectual property of dukes? Am I actually dealing with only a tiny fraction of 20 million people constituting only the top ranks of governants who have any unity with which to negotiate with me? I guess if the people who can negotiate with me are the most powerful spellcasters and have most of the money, that still counts for something, for certain terms and definitions of something. No, they'll all respect a deal the queen makes and enforce it in their own jurisdictions and they'll mostly respect each other's separate deals on top of that if we make any of those. But there's no centralized measurements of how well the whole economy is doing, it sounds like. Cheliax literally does not know its GDP and has no way of finding out. All it has are the amount of taxes it collects from the sub-hierarchy, and whatever verification structures must exist in order to verify how much the taxes. Does the system have any way of knowing whether a baron is just lying about how much tax they extracted from the people underneath, or is it all trust-based? Trust-based doesn't sound like it should work in Galerion, and wouldn't even be tried in civilization. I think they check some random selection and punish the cheats such that it's not worth cheating, but I don't know the details. 
It's always worth cheating. It's never worth getting caught. And all of this entire system is not based on fair division of mutual gains from moving to coordinated arrangements that make everyone better off. It is at least partially enforced at every level by threats that wouldn't counterfactually be made, except for the threatened agent's predicted tendency to give in to threats, meaning everybody at every level of the structure has various reasons not to like the current arrangement and to find it easy to imagine how they could do better. But they're terrible at coordinating and have high friction costs and expected destructive losses from trying to change anything because lots of the destructive threats would start firing to the point where it's proverbial that everybody overestimates the gains and underestimates the losses from trying to change anything. And people shouldn't even talk about trying that. You can change some things, just not try to overthrow the whole system at once. I'm not sure the thing you're saying about threats is true, says Meritzel. So say I'm a count, and I refuse to pay my taxes. The duke I'm supposed to pay them to would rather have a count who does pay taxes so he'll kill me and replace me. He's not doing that to threaten me. He's doing it because he wants a count who pays taxes. To the extent that I refuse to respond to threats made only to keep me in line, like a god, I should still pay my taxes. Because the killing and replacing me isn't done to keep me in line. It's done to have a tax-paying subordinate. I agree that this is a correct view from the perspective of a single count imagining their own decisions to be uncorrelated with any other count's decisions with all of the other counts, of course, thinking exactly the same thing, for exactly the same reasons, and so arriving at exactly the same decision. Are you thinking something along the lines of, if you introduce more lawfulness into this system, it explodes, so we'd be on some sort of time limit there? I had been questioning whether or not to say that out loud. But yes, that is among the things I was thinking. In particular, you'd have to master the art of reorganizing the system and distributing the gains in such a way as to make everyone better off, yes, including the people who are currently doing pretty well, before the system actually just explodes. I predict that actually we can't get 90% of Cheliac's lawful in the Dathalani sense, likely can't even get 10% to be, and therefore there is a very large supply of counts who will pay their taxes for dukes to replace all the Dathilani with, and therefore all the Dathilani are stuck. But note it. Out of curiosity, why is the Nathesian the one who... Nethys is also said to be the god of explosions. If somebody actually got Ione a real book on Nathesian theology and swore to her that it was untampered, Ione could make sure that she was not committing heresy that would potentially get her soul destroyed by Nethys each time she tries to help prevent something in Cheliacs from metaphorically exploding. This would help her cooperate with Cheliacs. As Ione has not yet delved very far into probability, it will not occur to her, nor to any listening security, that failure to deliver such a book is then also updatable evidence. Curious as to whether you can pinpoint the flaw in Carissa's argument for why the system won't explode. Um, not seeing it, actually. Unless it's something like, the Doth-Ilani counts end up too powerful from being Doth-Ilani, and dukes who try to replace them, if they succeed, will just find their duchies fading away in the new Cheliacs. It's a short-term view. Can't get 10% of Cheliacs that lawful in five years? Sure. Can't get Cheliacs that lawful when the average innate intelligence has risen to 14 and spell silver mining has been scaled to mass-produce plus six headbands. Kind of a different story. Civilization does not run on being like this. Unless you still think I'm wrong about that, Carissa. Oh, sure. I agree with that. 
But by the time we have all that, we can just pay people to move to an equilibrium that's better for everyone, and I don't think it'll explode before you get the headbands. Everything explodes eventually, Takaral, and life is just the thing that happens before the explosion. Remind me to ask later if I'm on an eventual time limit for evacuating this universe. My last universe had similar issues. Though that was more an issue of freezing over some very large number of years later. And the Keepers basically told everyone not to worry about it for now. Anyways, let me think on what to do about Cheliacs not being able to measure its own GDP. It would be nice to conclude they're just lying, in order to cheat him out of a fair share of the gains, but of course if they were going to do that, they could just not pay him after signing the contract, instead of presenting him with an overtly weird contract he might refuse to sign. Sure, he could ask them to swear an oath about it, but in most of that possible world's probability density, the story about oaths being a bad and enforced is fake anyways. Keltham doesn't know what to do here. Well, no, he knows this trope. It means he is in a trade with aliens story after all. The aliens have a legible unit of account matching their medium of exchange, which readily translates into unskilled labor hours. The aliens can negotiate market prices on things to balance supply and demand. But the aliens have no idea how large their economy is and can't measure its growth trend, let alone detect the growth going above trend. So how do you capture a fair share of the gains from trading knowledge to them? It sounds, Keltham says aloud, like the central problem of this contract is not dividing the gains, but measuring them. Out of death, Elon. There are proverbs about how, once you have identified the important part of the problem, you should make sure to stop, step back, and deliberately focus on solving that part of the problem. I suspect that what I have to do is sit down with governance experts on the local economy and its measurement and hash out the part of this contract that is actually the critical part and actually important. And before then, I should design an interim contract intended to be replaced by a future one so that we could potentially get started on roads or metallurgy or automatic cloth making. Well, it could have gone much worse. Right. So I think the things that need to happen are... Finally actually talk to the site manager so I can get a concept of the site budget and get some fraction of that budget available to me as a budget to do things like pay the project's employees. And I can't enforceably offer them real equity or options until Cheliax can recognize the existence of Galarian's first real corporate structures. Well, I could give them shares of future income that they're allowed to resell and ignore all concepts of corporate governance for now. I know what civilization thinks is a reasonable equity distribution investing schedule in a case where you have one super genius plus a bunch of more replaceable co-founders and employees, and it does not exactly sound like anybody knows enough to contradict me about that. I propose that everyone around the table, except me, separately, and without checking with each other, but with attribution, write down what they think would be a fair, non-volatile portion of wages for each of the eight project members to be retained, including themselves, but not me. I'd try it myself, except for the part where I just have no idea at all what anybody gets paid around Galarian. Urgent notice to security. Don't give any of us any information about what the others are thinking. We do not know how to make collaborative results look exactly the same to Keltham as if we'd come up with them separately. Carissa writes down that as a fourth circle wizard and a much better than average arms and armor enchanter, she could make 100 GP a week in salary selling scries and doing magic item commissions, 
while the second and third circle wizards would be making more like 10 GP slash week. She's not sure if this matters for what a fair wage is, but it seems weird if her value add here is smaller than her value add, making keen speed long swords. She thinks that if the project budget is large enough that 100 GP slash week slash researcher is in budget, then it is probably still a significant underestimate of their value created and is enough money for them to get whatever they want as a practical matter. If the project budget is smaller, it should probably be 10 GP slash week, but this would definitely be the researchers, or at least Carissa, accepting much less than she could make elsewhere for the potential for larger future gains. The other proposals are for less money, between 5 and 20 GP slash week, possibly because they're not produced by fourth circle wizards who could be very rich independently. Well, he's got enough info here to go see whether anything can be accomplished by talking to the site manager. Did Carissa want to be with him for that? It's not obvious that Ioni slash Asmodia slash Meritcell need to stick around for that. They are free to depart if they so will. It's not clear that besides Asmodia having her contract on hand, those three really needed to be here either. This whole conversation didn't end up going the way it would in civilization, what with, say, equity not really existing. But Keltham would have felt odd if the Tier 1 first employee semi-founders hadn't been called in by the Tier 0 super-founder for at least this much consultation. Carissa found the absence of Ioni calling her stupid to be informative, and she bets they appreciated being looped in. Off to the site manager's office, then. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.